During a three-game winning streak, despite a bunch of injuries, the offensive line was a surprising strength for the Seahawks, but that magic ran out yesterday in Cincinnati. We'll be breaking down a rough performance for the offensive line for the Seahawks and what may be next with that line heading towards a matchup with the Cardinals. You're going to be listening to the Monday edition of Locked on Seahawks. You are Locked on Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbett Smith, host of the Locked On Seahawks podcast, your daily Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Glad to be joined here for our Monday episode by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. And a special thanks to each and every one of the 12s out there, whether you're listening in Monterey, California, or Bangor, Maine. We greatly appreciate each and every one of you for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. The Seahawks dropping their second game of the season on Sunday in Cincinnati. Had plenty of opportunities to win that game. We're going to be dishing out our Monday musings, in-depth takeaways after re-watching Sunday's matchup at Paycor Stadium. We'll be answering your questions for our Monday mailbag as well. Jam-packed episode coming your way, so let's get to it. Now for your lead story here on our Monday edition of Locked On Seahawks. Going into Sunday, the Seahawks were riding a three-game winning streak. They did have a bye week after those three wins, but they had a lot of momentum going on the road. They've been playing really well at 10 a.m. Pacific time starts. And for the most part yesterday, the Seahawks did what they needed to do to win the football game. They played really sound defense. They were able to create a timely turnover. They even improved their third down numbers a little bit on offense. They improved them dramatically on the defensive side. But unfortunately, in this game, there were a number of other players that we could put some blame on. But Rob, looking back at this game, the offensive line, and Pete Carroll was talking about it on Seattle Sports this morning, that this just felt like a game where the injuries up front finally caught up with the Seahawks and the Bengals were able to take advantage of it with a really talented defensive line. And they made life difficult for Geno Smith and Ken Walker III for most of this game. Oh, they absolutely did. I mean, I think that uh, one of the easy statistics that you can look at as to explain why the Seahawks lost this game is the fact that uh, they allowed four sacks. They got three of them on their own, but it's not just the sacks. It was the quarterback hits. Uh, You know, the Seahawks, as I just mentioned, had three sacks of Joe Burrow, but they only had five quarterback hits. They surrendered 13 quarterback hits, uh, you know, and again, gave up those four sacks. Anybody who watched the game knows that when the Seahawks kind of, you know, flustered away their couple of different fourth down opportunities in the red zone, um, then it basically was because Geno Smith didn't have enough time to throw the football. I mean, he basically ended both of those drives on his backside, um, you know, and, and so the Seahawks didn't even throw the ball into the end zone to give them a chance to win the game. And so that was because of deficiencies in pass protection. The Seahawks failed to run the ball for over 100 yards against a defense that had struggled uh, to, uh, to to hold up in the running game despite some big plays by Kenneth Walker III. Um, so it was, I think, a, a game in which you can put an awful lot of blame on Seattle's starting five offensive linemen and their struggles to pass protect, despite the fact that they often use their tight ends uh use their running backs and max protection types of situations the crowd at Cincinnati certainly played a role the pass rush as you uh acknowledged a moment ago is very good for Cincinnati but I think that this was more a case of the Seahawks just you know 
injuries and the lack of experience, lack of camaraderie between the Seattle's offensive linemen and working together. Charles Cross came back, but still he doesn't have a great deal of experience working right next to Phil Haynes, who had moved over from right guard previously in his career to left guard. Um, and that lack of experience working together reared its ugly head too many times for the Seahawks to, and to leave Cincinnati with a victory. Yeah, and Jake Curhan got banged up early in the game and played through an injury and really struggled as well. And so this was just a difficult game. And if you look at the stats, I posted this on my X account earlier. I was going back and watching, and the Seahawks had given up 12 quarterback hits in the previous three games, all victories combined. And as you mentioned, they gave up 13 in this game. So they gave up more in four quarters in Cincinnati than he did in the previous 12 quarters in those three victories. And in those quarterback hits, if you try to delve in deeper, seven of those came in under two and a half seconds by my calculations. So we're talking not just getting after the quarterback, but doing it quickly. And across the board, the numbers, just looking at the pressures. And this is by my charting, not pro football focus or any other place. This is the charting that I came up with, Rob. But a little bit different credit here. I could have put Geno Smith on here for taking one of these sacks on his own that he extended a play, but I'm still going to give the benefit of the doubt to the quarterback because he had quick pressure on him throughout this football game, but three different players with four pressures allowed. Jake Curhan allowed eight yesterday. And all of those came to Sam Hubbard, who honestly was the most disruptive player on the field yesterday. Hendrickson was disruptive as well, but Sam Hubbard really was dominant yesterday against Jake Curhan. And even one of Hendrickson's sacks, the reason that he got the sack is because Geno Smith immediately had Sam Hubbard and Jake Curhan sitting in his lap from a bull rush, and he had to try to roll out to his left, and he rolled right into Hendrickson when Charles Cross really had pretty good pass protection on that play. So I'm not going to give Charles Cross that sack, even though it was his guy. Geno Smith rolled into it because of the pressure coming from the other side. Anthony Bradford got beat really bad a couple times late in the game, including the final decisive play. B.J. Hill whipped him with a rip move, quickly got into the backfield and hit Geno Smith's arm, forcing an incompletion, as you said. Didn't even get it to the end zone for his player to make a play on the football. The ball ended up hitting the ground. So that was really the theme of the game, and more so than I thought watching the TV copy. Once I got a hold of the All-22, it became even more evident. Yes, Geno Smith definitely has to play better, but this really feels like this is a game where that offensive line was the biggest problem. And when you give up a pressure rate north of 45%, they were at 46% in this game. 46% of their pass snaps had pressures on them. It's really difficult to move the football, which is why it's surprising that Geno Smith threw for 323 yards. A lot of this pressure came once they got in the 20s, and it just seemed like they couldn't run the ball when they got down there. And then that allowed Hendrickson and company to be able to pin their ears back. And so it's definitely concerning, but it's just one game. And you do have to remember that this is an offensive line that has a chance to get significantly healthier in the future, though they're not going to have Abraham Lucas back this week. So you're going to have to figure out what you're doing at that right tackle spot moving forward.
You are going to have to figure that out. And that's a, a significant concern because as you mentioned, Jake Curran did struggle in this football game. Now I've been a big fan of Jake Curran going, going back to his days at Cal. I thought that he had a solid performance at the senior bowl. Of course, Jim Nagy, former Seahawks scout, senior bowl executive, long time locked on Seahawks listeners. And thank you. As Corbin always, always says, thank you so much to all of those listeners, all of those viewers, those long time listeners and viewers will know that we have touted Jake Curran many, many times in this show. And again, Jim Nagy, former Seahawks scout, senior bowl executive, also Todd J. Curran, believes that he is a, a future 10-year starter in the NFL. Well, not if he plays the way that he did Sunday. There, there were times where he was just beaten right off the snap. The, the speed rush of Sam Hubbard, who is not necessarily that explosive of a speed rusher, but Jay Curran clearly was limited in this football game. I thought that the lack of uh, consistency, lack of rapport again between he um, and, and Seattle's uh, starting right guard Anthony Bradford in this contest. I think that it just, you know, again, reared its ugly head. There were just too many times where Cincinnati recognized that Seattle had an awful lot of inexperience at the guard positions. They just did simple little twists and stunts. They sent their linebackers on occasion um, on, on blitzes and just really filled those a gaps um, and really gave Geno Smith an awful lot of trouble. There were times that the offensive tackles blocked fairly well. And Geno Smith would try to kind of spin his way out of it, roll outside right into the pass rush, just because the a gaps were completely filled and he had nowhere else to go. Um, and, and so again, that to me was uh, indicative, not only of the fact that Seattle was a little bit, on their heels in terms of their offensive tackles on the outside. They were definitely on their heels at times from the inside out. And Cincinnati took full advantage of that. Geno Smith is not the fleet, most fleet of foot at the quarterback position. Seattle was having a hard time with the wide receiver position of just getting open against Cincinnati's cornerbacks. But yes, if we had to pin this loss on any one group, I think that we definitely have to start first and foremost with Seattle's offensive line. Yeah, the good news is that Damian Lewis, at least it sounds like there's an opportunity for him to be back this week against the Cardinals and he can get a little more stability in the interior, but you still got the right tackle question. And I believe that now is the time to see if 41-year-old Jason Peters can still get it done because I can't see Jason Peters playing any worse than what Jake Curhan did. And again, I've been a big supporter of Curhan. We have been on this podcast and I think he's played well in a few of these games, but I don't think he's healthy. The ankle issue that he suffered the other day or on Sunday in that game. And he has regressed the last couple of games. And when you get film on guys, it's easier to take advantage of. I feel like he's one of those players that can spot start a few starts. But if you get past three or four games, it's going to be much tougher with his athletic limitations that he has. So I'm interested to see if Jason Peters, we've been waiting the last couple of weeks. Is Seattle going to promote him from the practice squad or at least elevate him with a game day elevation and see what he can do. This would be a game coming up against the Arizona Cardinals where I actually right now would be making the prediction that I think Jason Peters is going to get that chance because they've got to do something. If Abraham Lucas isn't quite ready to be back, they're going to need to do something to try to shore up that line because yesterday it, that may have very well cost them a game that could come back to bite them towards the end of the season. Coming up next, we're going to answer your questions on our weekly mailbag, uh, mailbag segment. Don't go away. You're listening to the Monday edition of Locked On Seahawks, which is brought your way by our friends over at Game Time. If you've ever been in the hunt for sports or concert tickets at the last minute, the process can be anxiety-provoking, and buying tickets to your favorite events shouldn't be stressful. Game Time is the fast and easy way 
to buy tickets for all the sports, music, comedy, and theater near you. They've got killer deals on last-minute tickets, and with their best price guarantee, you can stop stressing over the tickets and start getting hyped for the fun you'll have. If you're wanting to see the Seahawks this upcoming Sunday at Lumen Field against the Cardinals, you can use Game Time's awesome flash deals feature and detailed stadium map. Right now, they've got tickets available under 70 bucks. It's super easy. Forget planning months in advance. Game Time has deals on tickets right up to the day of the event, and the Game Time guarantee means you'll always get the best price. If you find tickets in the same section and row for less, they'll credit you 110% of the difference. Snag the tickets without the stress with Game Time. Download a Game Time app, create an account. And use the code Locked NFL for twenty dollars off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem the code Locked NFL for twenty dollars off. Download Game Time today. Last minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. Prize Picks is the largest independently owned daily fantasy sports platform in North America. It's the easiest and most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. It's just you against the numbers. Instead of battling thousands of other players, such as pros and sharks, you pick more than or less than on two to six player stat projections and watch the winnings roll in. Prize Picks is really simple to play. I can make my picks in less than 60 seconds. This week on Prize Picks, I selected CeeDee Lamb to eclipse 100 receiving yards against the Chargers on Monday Night Football. Prize Picks is an absolute blast each week, and it's an easy way to enjoy daily fantasy without any hassle and land quick winnings. Go to prizepicks.com slash LockedOnNFL and use the code LockedOnNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. That's prizepicks.com slash LockedOnNFL and use the code LockedOnNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. You're listening to the Monday edition of Locked on Seahawks. This is your host, Corbin Smith. Glad to be joined, as always, by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. And a special thanks to each and every one of the 12s out there for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up tomorrow is Tell the Truth Tuesday. We'll have some of our last thoughts coming out of Sunday's loss to the Bengals. We'll start peering forward to a big divisional game against the Cardinals coming up on Sunday as well. You won't want to miss a jam-packed episode let's open up the mailbag shall we we've got a bunch of questions from our valued listeners here and first one for rob do you think pete carroll john schneider view gino as the franchise quarterback going forward or will they potentially look at drafting a qb next year this coming from eric c or eric v 144 on x uh i think the, the easy answer on both those questions is yes i think that they do view Geno smith as a franchise caliber quarterback one who could potentially help seattle uh win a second super bowl i also think that they would be silly not to be evaluating this year's quarterback class both because it is a very good class and also because Geno smith at what 34 years old i believe is an aging quarterback who only has another what, year maybe two at most on, on his deal and you will always want to be evaluating the young quarterbacks drew Locke, of course is also uh you know perceived by some to be a potential uh franchise kind of quarterback he's only on a one-year deal so regardless of how you feel about geno smith if you see that there is a quarterback available i think that you absolutely have to pounce i think it would have been interesting if anthony richardson had been available to seattle whether it be a number five and obviously devin witherspoon has been a, sp a spectacular uh selection for the cx at number five overall but had he somehow been available at number 20 overall i wonder if he might have been in play for the Seahawks. I know that they evaluate. They said it themselves. They took selfies of them basically in every single opportunity that they had in evaluating quarterbacks a year ago. I don't know that they're necessarily going to be taking those same selfies this year, but I assure you they are evaluating all the quarterbacks in this year's draft class. 
Yeah, I don't know that there's going to be selfies unless this season completely unravels. They end up with a top five pick again because they won't have the Broncos pick this year. If they did, they would maybe have that opportunity coming up this year. Next question coming from Lonnie Anderson. Do you think the Seahawks will make a trade before the deadline? Do they have the cap room? Could they get someone like Leonard Williams? So uh, the last part of that question, I mean, I would love to see Leonard Williams in a Seahawks uniform, and I think he'd be a fun scheme fit. But the Seahawks would have to make some additional moves to make that happen because he has an $18 million cap hit this year. Now you would be acquiring only half of the cap at the trade deadline, but they only have a little over $7 million in cap space. So nine is bigger than seven. They would have to do a few other things to try to open up cap space to facilitate a move like that. And I'm not saying it's impossible, but I think if they're going to make a move, they're, they're going to be looking for a player that is carrying a smaller cap load that they can bring in that can still be a difference maker. Now, defensive line, that could certainly be an area they're looking for another piece. Brian Monet may be back soon, too, so they might not have to trade for a player to have a deadline pickup, so to speak. But I think that there's a good chance they will make a move before the deadline. I just don't know that it's going to be that splashy move that everybody's looking for. They're going to be trying to find that Quandre Diggs, Carlos Dunlap type deal where they can trade away a day three pick and maybe get a veteran that can come in and really help them that isn't going to break the bank. And so it might be a player out in left field that nobody's expecting. Leonard Williams would be awesome, but I think it's very unlikely with his contract the Seahawks will be making that move. But the Giants, they definitely could be selling with a 1-5 in five start to the season. Next question for Rob. If you had to draw a pie chart of blame for the red zone struggles, what would be the percentage breakdown between Geno Waldron and the offensive line struggles? Ooh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, math is not my strong suit. So thank you, D Panky627. Uh, I believe that's what it says. Maybe 827. Uh, you know, I'm going to go 33, 33, 33, basically. 33 and a third, I guess I would have to say. You know, among the three. Um, I, I think that there definitely were some questionable decisions from a play caller standpoint. So from Shane Walger, I, I have a hard time with uh, the idea that Seattle's two tight ends, Kobe Parkinson and uh, Noah Fant, got more playing time in this particular game um, than Will Disley, who is easily Seattle's best pass protector, best blocker at the point of attack. You And I know that Will Disley has been coming off of an injury, but he did play against the Bengals. So if he's going to play, then play him consistently. I thought that that was uh, you know, a, a huge issue here. I, I think actually if, if I had to kind of – change my numbers here a little bit. I think that you have to blame the offensive line as we talked about here in the opening segment, but I think that Geno Smith deserves a fair amount of blame as well. The, the, the interception when he threw it to the ball to the right side, again, uh, towards Jackson Smith and Jigba they got intercepted there uh, I thought was an absolutely inexcusable decision he had both I believe it was Parkinson maybe Fant it was one of the tight ends and Kenneth Walker the third off to the right in the flat against one there was only one Cincinnati defender within 10 yards of him Corbin so it, it should have been an easy five six yeah. ten yard gain there so to me that was one that that I thought basically changed this football game if Seattle gets any type of points there then this is an entirely different game um so again I, I think that there is equal, a lot of blame to be passed around there um i don't think that any of them should be excused from blame but i don't think that any one of them whether it be offensive line play caller or the quarterback uh that any of them deserve overriding blame because again there were just so many different problems in a very winnable game that's what makes this loss that much more frustrating 
Our next question coming from JC44567. We got a lot of draft-related questions, and I just I feel like that happens a lot after losses, and I think that's something that fans, it, it might be a way they cope. But anyway, the question, under-the-radar prospect who could be a day-two option for Seahawks to groom behind Geno Smith. Now, Rob, I'm going to let you chime in briefly on this after I make my answer because you are the draft guru, and – I don't spend as much time looking at college tape until after the season. So that's usually when I get caught up on my evaluations. With that being said, those of you that were watching on YouTube, I had KJ Jefferson on my short list of guys that intrigued me last year. And Arkansas has a lot less talent than most of the teams in the SEC this year. They lost a lot of players to the draft. This is a team that's that's rebuilding in a number of position groups. And he almost willed them back to beat Alabama the other day with a furious rally. I think he's a really solid pa uh, pocket passer when he needs to be, but his ability to run the ball at 235, 240 pounds, the speed, the size, I see some Cam Newton in his game, but I feel like he's maybe a more polished passer at this point. You just can't see it because I don't feel like the talent is around it, but KJ Jefferson is still a guy of day two. I feel like he's not getting talked about because of all the elite quarterbacks in this draft class, but if you're looking for a guy second round, third round, that could make a lot of sense, that could develop into a starting quarterback in the NFL and learn from Geno Smith. K.J. Jefferson would be on my list. And on day three, Grayson McCall from Coastal Carolina is still a player that intrigues me a lot that I really have liked for the last couple of years. Yeah, I agree with, with both those players that you just mentioned. Um, I would say Van Dyke at Miami is a guy who's playing in a pro-style yep. offense that, that I am a, a fan of his game. Uh, you know, you want to talk about sleepers, and this guy isn't necessarily a sleeper in that a lot of people in the Pac-12 are going to recognize the name, but at the same time, because he has been injured all year long, but Utah's Cameron Rising is a guy who has the toughness that the Seahawks have always prioritized at the quarterback position. And again, he's going to be viewed as a sleeper because he's older, because he's still coming off of a torn ACL. Um, but uh, again, a guy that uh, some NFL, NFL scouts out there that I've spoken to remain very high on him. And because he has yet to take a single snap so far this season, a lot of people in the media are absolutely, uh, you know, basically forgetting about this point in the year. Those were the two other names I had on my short list. So, and we did not talk about this before the show. So uh, very fitting here. Uh, last question that we've got on today's mailbag why didn't the Seahawks throw to their tight ends more? And why didn't they roll out Geno more? This coming from Seattle view home. And <laughs> Rob, I, I have a feeling that you are going to want to chime in on this one too. But, um, you know, going into this game, I'm going to be honest. I didn't expect to see quite as much of the three tight end personnel because I thought the Seahawks were going to try to spread things out a little bit and try to run the football that way. And I thought Zach Charbonnet, they were going to be running more up the gut with him. Charbonnet had two carries the entire game. So there were a lot of things. And again, this is why I'm hosting a podcast. I'm not the offensive coordinator for the Seahawks. But if I was the coordinator for the Seahawks, I just felt like a lot of the things they did kind of bucked what I was expecting to see this week. But that is actually one area that I was not surprised that they played less of the three tight end looks given the issues that the Bengals had had defending perimeter runs and spread out offenses to this point, it just didn't work out. And there were some questionable ways they utilized the personnel that they had out there. 
Oh, I 100% agree with that. I, I, as far as the design rollouts, I thought that that was understandable. Um, again, Geno Smith, he ran a 4.59 when he came out of West Virginia all those years ago, but he has not run a 4.59 at this point. And I really like the speed that the Bengals have on the outside, especially, again, when you were on the road. That was a loud, passionate crowd. Um, and I think that, you know, considering the fact that you have a Jake Curran who, you know, has some limitations. You have Charles Cross is as gifted as any left tackle in the NFL in my opinion, in terms of his light feet, but at the same time, it's his first game back. So I thought that it was understandable that you wouldn't do a lot of design rollouts, a lot of uh, you know quarterback waggles, things of that nature. But on the flip side, that I really thought that this was a game that Seattle should have used their tight ends much more than they did so. Uh, as you said, Corbin, I mean, we're, we're basically hosting a podcast at this point, but that would de- definitely have been something that I think that the Seahawks should have prioritized, especially once they got into the red zone. Coming up next, we're going to continue looking back at yesterday's loss in Cincinnati with our Monday musings. Unfortunately, not a victory Monday, but maybe not a misery Monday either. Maybe somewhere in between. But we will be dishing out our in-depth takeaways after watching the film, looking at the All-22. So don't go away. You're listening to the Monday edition of Locked on Seahawks, which is brought your way by LinkedIn These days, every new hire can feel like a high-stakes wager for your small business, and you want to be 100% certain you have access to the best qualified candidates available. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs helps find the right people for your team faster and for free. When I was a site manager, LinkedIn Jobs was my go-to to post writing positions to land top candidates, and they made the process easy and seamless. All you have to do is create your job post and add your job with the purple hashtag hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile to spread the word you're hiring. They offer simple tools like screening questions that make it easy to focus on candidates with the right skills and experience so you can quickly prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. And LinkedIn jobs helps you find the qualified candidates you want to talk to faster. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash locked in NFL. That's linkedin.com slash locked in NFL to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to the Monday edition of Locked on Seahawks. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Glad to be joined, as always, by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. And a special thanks to each and every one of the 12s out there for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We greatly appreciate it. Don't forget, coming up tomorrow, it is Tell the Truth Tuesday. We'll dish out some of our final thoughts coming out of yesterday's defeat to the Bengals. Looking towards next weekend against the Arizona Cardinals and We'll look at what's new with the Cardinals, which this may be the longest what's new segment we've had the entire season because almost everything is new in the desert with the Cardinals. So we'll be starting to break down the upcoming opponent, the first matchup between two bitter rivals. Make sure you are listening in. Let's talk our Monday musings, Rob. And this was obviously a game where the Seahawks had countless chances to snatch defeat out and snatch victory from defeat, so to speak. And they were not able to do it. It was a game where they fell behind 14 to seven. The defense ended up playing outstanding football from there on out, constantly giving Geno Smith and the offense, the football back. They just couldn't capitalize on those opportunities. So from an offensive perspective, looking at yesterday's game, what is something that jumps out to you here With our Monday musings, maybe it's a misery Monday, maybe it's something in between, but what's something that jumps out to you on offense? Yeah, 
uh, you know, Corbin, we, we've often called it whenever the Seahawks lose a misery Monday. And I don't think it's quite that. I, I think it's a look in the mirror Monday because I, I think that the Seahawks are still struggling to figure out their identity as a team and definitely on offense. Frankly, I, I think that this team got a little bit too cute. Um, and I think that that's something that we have seen happen uh, throughout Pete Carroll's tenure, but a lot of head coaches, when they get a bye week, I think it's really easy for coaches to get on the whiteboard and just kind of scheme up some new fun plays. And, you know, a lot of times those things work and sometimes they do not. And I thought that there were plenty of examples in this game where Seattle tried to do some things that, you know, if they just kind of, I don't want to say that they didn't self scout well enough, um, but maybe they didn't recognize some of their own players deficiencies some of the Cincinnati Bengals strengths but uh one particular play that you moved Jake Curran who had been struggling with speed rushes at the right tackle position they moved him to play outside of Charles Cross basically as a tight end and predictably Trey Hendrickson the speediest pass rusher on the Bengals absolutely blew up blew that play up it was actually a running play to the left with Ken Walker the third but it was a huge tackle for loss where Curran just did not have the speed to be able to play Trey Hendrickson. We just talked about this with uh, um, you know, the question and answer segment there, the Monday mailbag. I really thought that Seattle's tight ends could have taken advantage of some aggressive Cincinnati linebackers who would have been coming up in run support. Um, and look, I have a great deal of respect for Cincinnati's defensive backfield, but still, I thought that this was a game that Seattle's tight ends could have made some big plays. To me, this was a game where it felt like Seattle was very much trying to get Jackson Smith and Jigba involved. And I thought that at times it was almost to the detriment of the rest of their offense. So this is going to be kind of the theme I'm going to talk about throughout this entire Monday musings element. I, I really thought that Seattle needed to kind of look at themselves in the mirror and recognize this was a game that was a Pete Carroll type of a game, a defensive special teams kind of a game. And instead, I thought that they tried to get explosive try to do some things in the offensive side of the ball that were better on Tate or better on the whiteboard than they were on the green field and I think that that's the biggest reason why the Seahawks lost this game is they just kind of lost their identity a little bit yeah and I'm gonna build off what you said with more specifics here and I'm not just saying this because I picked Zach Charbonnet as my pick to click and that was my worst pick that I've made this entire year I mean two carries for five yards didn't really do anything in the passing game but you mentioned that this was a Pete Carroll-style game, that it was defensive, and there were a lot of possessions where the defense was forcing punts, and there were turnovers in this game, and neither team was able to really get their run game going. You know, If you really wanted this to be a Pete Carroll-style game, though, get somebody in there that is going to bash some defenders between the tackles. I just... We mentioned it on our matchup Wednesday last week, Rob. I thought this was an ideal matchup, and it's not that I don't think Ken Walker the third shouldn't have gotten a lot of carries. That is not what I'm saying. But you got to find a way to get Zach Charbonnet involved. Shane Waldron's got to drink some Charbonnet at the goal line. Like, I can't remember the last time that they were in the red zone and number 26 was in the backfield. And again, Ken Walker the third, he scored six touchdowns this year in the red zone. So it's not like he's ineffective. But well, my issue is I've watched this Bengals team for the last month and a half consistently get beat up by downhill punishing running backs. This was a game that I thought suited Zach Charbonnet's skill set well, and he spent 90% of the game 
on the sidelines. I would have loved to see, and you could tell Pete Carroll talking to the media today that he kind of was like, you know, maybe we could, you know, maybe that would have benefited us some. I think it would have, especially in those red zone situations where they ran for five yards on four carries after their opening touchdown drive. When they were in the red zone, their, their run game was dysfunctional. And it felt like they were trying to spread it outside. They were trying to be horizontal. This was not a game to do that. This was a game, get downhill, mash people. And Zach Charbonnet could have been a lot more useful. So that was frustrating to me from the identity and play calling perspective and personnel perspective that you're not getting him involved more. No, I 100% agree with you. Uh, I really thought that that was something that, again, when the Seahawks were winning Super Bowls or at least going to them, and obviously in back-to-back years, they were the most physical team in the NFL. And now it feels like at times they are one of the more finesse teams in the NFL. And maybe that will also translate into victories. I thought that this was a game that they were clearly not as physical as Cincinnati. And at least in the Pete Carroll era, when Seattle is not physical, they typically wind up losing football games. I'm going to switch over here to the defensive side of the ball, Corbin, where the Seahawks were the exact opposite of that. They were very physical in this football game. It was very encouraging. I was stunned with how well they played uh, on the road and in that victory over the New York Giants a couple of weeks ago. I mean, it was historic. We talked about this before. 11 sacks tying a franchise record in that football game. You know, in, in this game, again, they had three sacks. They were pretty effective in that regard. And I was encouraged by the fact that they were by three different players. I also was encouraged by the play of Jamal Adams. I was encouraged by the fact that, and I still can't believe this number. I've checked it four times just to make sure that I know it. The Seahawks allowed 214 total yards. 214. This is Joe Burrow. This is Jamar Chase. This is Joe Mixon. And this is a damn talented offense. This is Zach Taylor as the play caller, who is a very good one. Um, and yet 214 total yards. They held Cincinnati to three of 11 on third down. They won the time of possession 34 to 26. I mean, an eight minute difference at time of possession on the road is virtually unheard of. And yet they lost this football game. So there's a lot of encouraging things here to be excited about on the Seahawks on defense. That, the consistency on defense, again, to me is very encouraging because of the way you absolutely destroyed New York a couple of weeks ago this was a game that they should have won because Seattle's defense just is playing lights out football right now I know Devin Witherspoon won NFC defensive player of the week in week four but you have to consider the opponent the New York Giants don't have any receivers that really strike fear in you their best receiver is their tight end Darren Waller and so going into this game especially with the fact that and we didn't really touch on this during the week but when DK Metcalf made the comment that he, you know, he respected Jamar Chase's game, but he expected Devin Witherspoon to shut him down. When that was said, I thought, oh no, we've got bulletin board material here. But it's almost as if Devin Witherspoon kind of embraced that. And you could tell that when he was talking to reporters last week after the fact that he was excited for the matchup and he wasn't knocking Jamar Chase. He knows what kind of a talent he is, but you could just see that big smile on his face in the field yesterday. And how excited he was for the opportunity to show off what he could do against an elite receiver. And Jamar Chase got, he I believe he was targeted in this game 13 times, and he only had six receptions in this game. I mean, that's as close to shutting him down as you were going to get. And he had a 31-yard catch. Otherwise, they were a bunch of shorter plays. And 
Devin Witherspoon had two pass breakups in coverage against him. One of them was with his backside because he was in good position and Joe Burrow threw the ball and it was short and it hit him in the back. But he had three pass breakups in this game. He really aced his first real test. This is one of those top three, top five receivers in the NFL that could play inside and out. And it didn't matter where he was at. Devin Witherspoon watching the tape, the, the plays where Chase wasn't targeted. He had really good coverage on him when he was lined up against him and came up and had a really nice hit in the run game again. He has been such a difference maker in that regard in the slot with the physicality he brings. So I think right now he is very much in the running for defensive rookie of the year with what he's doing as an all-around player. And games like that, he's going to take notice from the rest of the league because of who he was going against and the success that he had getting his hands on the football. Real quick, Rob, to close things out, final thoughts coming out of yesterday's game. It could be offense. It could be defense. It could be special teams. What is something else that stands out to you coming out of yesterday's game? Well, I'll, I'll jump in on special teams here because I have been as critical, I believe, as anybody when it comes to Jason Myers. And so I think that the Seahawks, you know, I, I've got to give him some credit here. When they, when he made that 55 yard field goal, I believe it was 47 seconds left in the first half. It, it basically made that a 14 10 football game. I thought that it gave, it, it gave Seattle the momentum back in a game in which, as we, talk, we just talked about, I mean, Cincinnati scored two touchdowns to start the game off, and then defensively, Seattle just absolutely shut them down. I think that Seattle gave up, uh, allowed four total first downs to this juggernaut Cincinnati offense the whole rest of the game after those two, uh, you know, those first two touchdowns. And the only reason that Cincinnati scored again was because of the interception late in the game against DK, uh, where Geno Smith and DK Metcalf clearly were on different pages. Um, and, and they got the ball and, and scoring opportunity, scoring position. But uh, so I think to me, I've got to give a little bit of credit here to Jason Myers. I, I really believe and this kind of goes again, goes back to that whole theme I have for this game for the Seahawks in particular just who are you look back look yourself in the mirror and recognize what you're what you've always been about Seattle's always been about defense always been about special teams if you were going to pay a kicker the the second highest amount of money of any kicker in all of the NFL then use him and and so when he's making 55 yard kicks he made of course another kick later in the game this was a game you wind up losing by four points and you got shut down twice in the last five six minutes of the football game in the red zone kick the field goals you're the you're the the team on the road force the team at home to be able to make some big plays just get yourself in position to win that football game don't put it all on a quarterback playing behind a very inexperienced offensive line to play hero ball you know play the kind of football that you have always played so again i have been as critical of jason myers as just about anybody out there i gotta tip my cap to him i thought that that 55 yard kick was as nails as it comes. Um, and I thought that he really put the Seahawks in position to steal this victory. They just didn't give him the opportunity to kick the ball. Yeah, you know, it was debatable in those couple drives. Uh, the one around the five-minute mark where they got stopped in the red zone and they decided to go for it, kick the field goal there, and it's a one-point game. And if you can get the football back, you can go win it with a field goal. It totally changes the complexion of that last drive. We don't have to worry about Geno Smith getting hit on fourth and eight near the goal line because you don't have to go for it. You can just kick the field goal and you can fly home happy with a victory. So those are always tough because if they would have got the touchdown there, that obviously changes things for the Cincinnati Bengals on the other side as well. So I like the aggression at the same time. 
I tend to agree with you there. Use your kicker, especially when it seemed like he was ready to go yesterday and that 55-yard boot was as good of a kick as he's had this whole year. Real quick, I want to close on the show. We're talking about this defense. I want to talk about the guy that right now I think is earning himself some cred in the future head coach rankings. And it's a coach that last year I felt like was at times a little over his head as a first-time defensive coordinator. But let's give Clint Hurt some major props because what I've noticed these last couple games, Rob, we talked about this all of last year. It felt like the Seahawks couldn't adjust in games. And second halves, they had all kinds of issues with explosive plays, running games. And what we have seen this year, obviously the run defense, it's light and day in all four quarters. They are one of the best run defenses in the NFL. And part of that is that they've got better personnel to fit what they're wanting to do. The young guys have been caught up to speed a little bit more. Bringing in Bobby Wagner certainly didn't hurt that either. But I just feel like Clint Hurt has a much better bearing on the position that he is holding now as a play caller and knowing what to do from an adjustment standpoint. They came out early yesterday and they were blitzing corners and safeties and the Bengals were having success picking that apart, unlike the Giants in their previous game. So they switched gears up and you started to see more Bobby Wagner and Jordan uh, Brooks blitzing and they had success doing that taking advantage of that interior offensive line that we talked about for the Bengals last week and I think that that switch just that subtle change up in how they were bringing their pressure that really facilitated it was a catalyst for that dominant performance giving up just 87 total yards on the last nine possessions that the Bengals had in this game a big part of it was that switch up and they weren't blitzing every play but they changed how they were pressuring their opponent and that's the type of in-game adjustments that we just did not see from Clint Hurt last year. So you can tell that he's starting to figure this out. He's figuring out how to use his personnel, mixing and matching guys, the secondary being healthy, mixing all those guys in. Jamal Adams being used effectively, had a big game for the Seahawks. So a lot of that goes back to Clint Hurt, who I feel like is really making strides and showing a lot of growth in that defensive coordinator role. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. Subscribe and follow Locked on Seahawks on YouTube and wherever you listen to your podcast to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Tomorrow is Tell the Truth Tuesday. We'll be dishing out some final thoughts coming out of this loss in Cincinnati and starting to peer forward to Sunday's first matchup against the Arizona Cardinals at Lumen Field. Thanks for listening in and enjoy the rest of your Monday. Go Hawks.